I phoned David Cameron from the back room in Edinburgh's Dynamic Earth Exhibition Centre and congratulate him on his victory. He congratulates me on an amazing campaign. He tells me that he's appointed Lord Smith of Kelvin to take forward the promises made to Scotland in the dying days of the referendum, the vote. Excellent choice, I say, and he pauses. It suddenly occurs to me that he clearly doesn't realise how well I know Robert Smith. Why on earth does he think I appointed him to lead the Commonwealth Games? I press Cameron on whether he'll have a Commons vote on the offer to Scotland before Easter, as Gordon Brown has promised. I know he won't. With dawn approaching, the Prime Minister rings off to go and make his speech outside number 10, which I watch on television. As he struts out to say that the Scottish reforms must take place in tandem with, and at the same pace as, changes in England, I immediately realised the significance. There was no mention of this last week, when he was in complete panic about the polls. I think, you silly, arrogant man, and look around the room. The campaign team are totally exhausted, all passion spent. And no one realises the door that Cameron has just opened. I understand, no, I, I sense what now must be done. Just a few hours earlier, at 3.30am, my wife Moira and I left for Edinburgh from Aberdeen Airport. A snapper caught us at the gates. I had my head down reading the referendum results in my iPad as they came in, far from the most flattering image of the campaign. And I saw the picture posted online before we had even reached Edinburgh. Anticipating the same thing happening at Turnhouse, I made sure I was sporting the bravest of smiles as we left the airport. First we went to Butte House, where I phoned my Chief of Staff, Jeff Aberdeen, to say that I'd make the concession speech from Dynamic Earth as soon as the no side had an official majority. The Yes campaigners had gathered there all night and would be absolutely gutted. They had to hear from me directly. I delivered that speech that I'd crafted very early in the morning when the first result from Clack Manning came through at 1.31am. It was gracious in tone, but resilient in defeat, celebrating the 1.6 million votes for yes and pointing to the future. Following Cameron's appearance outside number 10 and now back in Butte House, I sit down and write a brief resignation speech. I know exactly what needs to be said. It takes but one draft. I ask the press team to arrange for John Swinney and Nicola Sturgeon to come and see me at lunchtime and to organise a press conference for the afternoon. Finally, Moira and I are able to catch up on an hour or so's sleep. When getting dressed, I reach for my favourite saltire tie, but Moira says that tartan would be better, softer, for this particular day, and so a Lockhart and tartan tie it is. Nicola and John arrive. We meet in the cabinet room. Nicola tries to talk me out of resignation and at some length. She points out there's no demand, no expectation of her resignation. Yes, I say, that's exactly the time to do it. John, who was in this situation with me 14 years ago, is emotional. Calmly I explain that I'm not resigning out of peak or even disappointment. Of course I'm heartbroken about the result, but that's not the issue now. Cameron has opened the door, and we must drive through it quickly. This is about what best takes the country forward. Peter Housden, my permanent secretary, arrives. Calm and authoritative as ever, he puts the arrangements into gear. He agrees that, despite the shortage of space, Butte House is the appropriate, indeed the only place, to deliver the speech. The drawing room is packed by three o'clock. I thank people for coming at short notice, and I deliver the following address. I'm immensely proud of the campaign which Yes Scotland fought, and particularly of the 1.6 million votes who rallied to that cause. I'm also proud of the 85% turnout in the referendum and the remarkable response of all the people of Scotland who participated in this great democratic constitutional debate and, of course, the manner in which they conducted themselves. 
We now have the opportunity to hold Westminster's feet to the fire on the vow that they have made to devolve further meaningful power to Scotland. This places Scotland in a very strong position. I spoke to the Prime Minister today, and although he reiterated his intention to proceed as he has now outlined, he would not commit to a second reading vote by the 27th of March on a new Scotland Bill. That was a clear promise laid out by Gordon Brown during the campaign. The Prime Minister says that such a vote would be meaningless. I suspect he can't guarantee the support of his party, and as we've already seen in the last hour, the common front between Labour and Tory, Tory and Labour, is starting to break. But the real point is this. The real guardians of progress are no longer politicians at Westminster or even at Holyrood, but the energised activism of tens of thousands of people who I predict will refuse to meekly go back into the political shadows.